Developing Cyber Resilient Systems. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Ronald S. Ross, computer scientist and fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Welcome, Dr. Ross. Hey, Tanya, it's always good to be with you. So I know you've been here before. Give us a brief summary of your cybersecurity role at NIST. Well, I'm part of the uh, Information Technology Laboratory. That's one of um, many different labs at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And within the ITL, we have a couple of um, computer security related divisions. I'm in the actual computer security division. We do the foundational research and development of things like cryptographic standards and the FISMA work, security controls and frameworks. And then there's another division called the Applied Cybersecurity Division, and they apply the foundational things that we do in CSD in things like vertical sectors, healthcare, financial sector. We have our National Cyber Security Center of Excellence works working with industry to try to solve difficult and challenging cybersecurity problems. So it's a, it's a nice mix of foundational concepts and applied uh, cybersecurity concepts. You gave the opening keynote uh, address at the 2019 New York Metro Joint Cybersecurity Conference on the topic of cyber resiliency. What's the primary threat to our critical systems today? Well, I think the primary threat to all of our systems, especially the ones that are critical, the fact that we have such complex infrastructures, the, the hardware, the software, the firmware, the systems, all of these uh, really great technological advancements and all interconnected and now we're layering on top of that the internet of things and all those devices around your house and i think the greatest threat to the country in general this is both an economic and a national security problem is the fact that the complexity uh, allows the attack surface to grow the adversaries have greater and greater opportunities to attack our critical systems and they can do any number of things to us. They can exfiltrate or steal information. They can bring down our capability. They can plant malicious code uh, to be triggered at a later date. And they can uh, do uh, deception campaigns like we saw over the last few years. So there's a lot of vulnerabilities in these systems just because the, the, the complexity is so great. And we don't know where all those vulnerabilities are. Uh, we know where the known vulnerabilities are, but not the unknowns. And that's what keeps a lot of important people up at night who are trying to run the infrastructure and all the big companies and the federal agencies, which are doing really important work. What methods do you recommend for managing and reducing system complexity? Well, I think it's a difficult challenge because the technology is so compelling. I think we're all in some way addicted to this technology because it's so powerful. And you just look at your smartphone and your tablet, those things contain such powerful applications that make us more productive and they, they allow us to, to compete globally. And, and it's such an important part of the way we live today. And that complexity, the, the growth of that capability and that functionality is very difficult to get back in the bottle. So it's a challenge when you're in an organization to try to figure out what are your most critical assets and what are the most critical functions that your business or your agency has to perform and then try to isolate those critical functions to an area that's more of a safe domain or a domain that you can protect with a greater degree of safeguards and countermeasures that allow it to be stand apart from all the rest of the things that you manage. And once you're able to do that criticality analysis, you can then sit down and actually apply those stronger methods to help provide the additional protection. And 
I, I use the very simple example of a safe deposit box. You know, you can't get all your important things in that box, but you walk around the house and you figure out what's important. Maybe your coin collection, important papers, things that, you know, you have a lock on your front door, but sometimes that lock is not strong enough to stop some of the sophisticated burglars or bad guys out there. So you find a way to take your critical things and move them to a safer, more secure domain. That's job number one, I think, of every senior leader today. Explain the concepts of least functionality and least privilege and, and why these matter. Well, least functionality and least privilege are, are two foundational cybersecurity concepts. They actually go back over 40 years. And the basic idea is, is we're talking about complexity. When you're building software and systems, the larger those systems get, the more software, the more lines of code, the more integrated circuits, that complexity then allows the attack surface to grow and gives the adversary more opportunity. So we talk about least functionality. We talk about reducing the number of things in that system to the bare minimum because simpler is better. When you have simpler software, you're able to go through a lot of what we call design analysis and testing and evaluation to make sure that that software actually performs under stress and it won't fail. But you can't do that when you get millions and millions of lines of code and hundreds and thousands of applications. It's more of a computer science and a physics problem than anything else. So we try to emphasize least functionality, but it's hard to do because if you look at your smartphone, for example, you want all the apps on that phone that you possibly can. And the more of those things you bring in, you don't know where they're built, how they're built, where they're coming from, for the most part. And that provides additional vulnerability on any system or device that you might own. So trying to reduce that is difficult, but very important from the standpoint of building more trustworthy, more assured systems. Least privilege is kind of a similar type of concept. You have lots of people on these systems and what they have access to can range from lots and lots of stuff to very limited things. But you want to give, there are certain types of privileges. You might have heard the term administrative privileges, which allows a person to have greater access to more things that are system critical. And you don't give those privileges to very many people because you don't want to potentially expose if somebody turns bad and you have 100,000 people with admin privileges, then that makes that situation that much worse. So you try to limit the number of people who have access to the critical assets on a system because it's a numbers game. You, you trust fewer people and it's, you, you can do greater background checks on those people to make sure they really are trusted. And that's the concept of least privilege. Only give privileges to people who need to have those privileges to actually carry out the business or the, the critical agency operations. So there has to be a balance between these concepts and user convenience and compliance. Absolutely. This is all about risk management, and that's what makes risk management so challenging and so much fun to deal with because you have this natural tension between people who want everything because it's so cool and it's compelling and those people who are saying, hey, the more things you bring here, the harder my job is to protect this stuff. So you have to be able to balance the risk. And one of the things that we think is really important in risk management is not just being able to accept the risk, but understanding what that risk really is. And to understand the risks for senior leaders, you really have to have a security staff and a privacy staff that can explain some of those details in a way that resonates with senior leaders. Because they're busy doing you know, the stuff of the company or the agency. They don't have time to get down to those details. But to be able to explain it to them in terms they understand. So two-factor authentication or encryption of data at rest. Those are the things, some of the things that 
or foundational, but a senior leader really is not going to get down at that level of detail. So it really takes a special individual to be able to understand the stack, as I call it, from application to middleware to operating system down to the integrated circuits out to the network. The adversary plays at all of those places in the stack. And to be able to convey to senior leaders what they need to do at every point in that stack to help secure that system to the best of their ability. Within that risk tolerance, as you described, there is a balance and a tension that exists. And that's why the job is so difficult because we want to do it all. And, and sometimes we get ourselves a little bit too far out there on the risk equation to uh, uh, things that we really shouldn't be doing. So what questions should security professionals and system users each be prepared to answer from the other to optimize cyber resiliency? Well, cyber resiliency is part of our new multi-dimensional strategy. If you go back about 40 years in our business, it was all about one dimension, penetration resistance. We were gonna throw every control, every security requirement in that system, and we were gonna hope we could build that wall high enough so the adversaries wouldn't come crawling over or build that moat around the castle. But we know after literally decades of experience that even when we bring our best, our A game to this problem, sometimes the adversaries are just really, really better. They, they, have a, they have a lot of resources, they're smart people, and they will find a way, they will find that one vulnerability in that complex infrastructure that, that we call these zero days, a vulnerability that we don't know about, but the adversary finds out about, they exploit it, then we do know about it. So it's a challenge to have that one dimension when it fails maybe five to 10% of the time. So what do you do when it fails in a critical system? Well, we decided that there are additional dimensions that you can implement within a system that extend that penetration resistance. We still do that, but our second dimension is called damage limitation. And there are many, many techniques today in architecture and engineering concepts. And this is really what drove our 8160 series of engineering publications that can take an architecture and there are ways to limit damage either through, you might have heard the term uh, zero trust architectures, where inside that system, it's a series of domains and you don't just get to come into the system one time and then have access to everything. You basically divide everything up into domains and you have strong authentication and strong authorization at various places within the system. So you make it very difficult for the adversary to move quickly across that system to find the target of opportunity. And that technology is still not totally mature, but it is maturing over time. The other dimension you can look at is try to reduce the adversary's time on target. And we talk about virtualization techniques. We've been doing virtualization for a long time, hypervisors, virtual machines, and when malicious code is in a virtual machine, it's only there as long as that VM is active. And when it goes away, the, the code goes away too. If you extend that concept of virtualization out to micro-virtualization, where we're now virtualizing smaller and smaller pieces of that system, what you're really doing is churning that system faster than the adversary can get in and exploit. They need time on target. So that churn, that natural churn that you're building into the system through virtualization, can really reduce the adversary's time to almost nothing. And then you really don't care if they come in because they can't do anything. They're not there long enough. The system is just moving faster than they can keep up with. So that's kind of the damage limitation in our second dimension. And then we have a third dimension called cyber resiliency, that, that what you were asking about. That is to try to make the system more survivable. And the analogy I use is it's more like uh, this, these finite state machines look more like a human body with an immune system. 
you're able to absorb those diseases, the various things that the human body encounters every day, bacteria, viruses, and you have an innate immune system that uh, is pretty good. I mean, we, about 90% of the time or more, your immune system is doing its job. Now, it's true that if you get cancer and you don't catch it early enough, then even that can overwhelm the immune system. But we've got a lot of things in our second volume of the 80160 publication. Uh, the title of the pub is Building, Developing Cyber Resilient Systems. And we literally have a cyber resiliency engineering framework for engineers to use, talking about specific techniques and approaches all the way down to the implementation of what it means to have a system that looks more like the human body and is resilient. It can operate even under a cyber attack by the advanced persistent threat and still continue to operate, even though it's in a degraded or debilitated state. So where can we find the cybersecurity tools and resources that NIST offers to the public? Well, we have a great website. Uh, CSRC.nist.gov is our computer security division. So we call it this, the resource uh, clearinghouse. We have all of our standards and guidelines and tools and frameworks up there. And people can also get a hold of me at my email address. It's ron.ross at nist.gov. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm at Ron Ross Secure on Twitter, and that's my LinkedIn handle as well. And also, you can call us and email us anytime. We operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As taxpayers, uh, you all have paid uh, very generously for the work that we do. We're grateful to all of our customers out there, and I'm grateful, Tanya, to you for letting us share our story today. Absolutely. And thanks again for coming back, Ron. We always love to have you uh, share some insights on how we can be more protected. That's Dr. Ronald S. Ross, computer scientist and fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And if you guys want to find me and more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.